can't always be with you. When Robin had surgery on Monday because of the new hospital regulations, I was there uh, by myself. And part of what I was doing while she was in surgery was meditating on the text that we're going to be looking at in Scripture uh, today, uh, not for a sermon, but for me. There's been a lot of places in the Bible that uh, I've gone to during this time, but there's been two in particular that have just continually ministered to me. One is Job 23, and the other is what we're going to look at in this service, and that's Hebrews 4 and 5. If you want to find that in your Bible or if you're on the uh, online platform, uh, there's a Bible there. There's also the, the, the notes uh, that are there. But we began this series last week by asking the question, can suffering be avoided? And I made the case biblically that the answer is no, because Scripture teaches us that sin is real, and due to the reality of sin, that suffering is actually unavoidable. Now, that may sound depressing to you, but we talked about the fact that we need to be realists to find true hope. And so that leads to the second question, and that is, can we have hope in our suffering? And what I want to show you in this series from God's Word is that we can have hope in our suffering because of what God has done for us in Christ. And so what I'm planning for us to do over the next three weeks starting tonight is to look at some particular uh, some of the particular things that God has done for us in Christ that enable us to have this hope. And so the big idea that I want us to focus on tonight is this, that we can have hope in suffering because Jesus is the God who joined us in our suffering. This is one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from other religions, and that is the idea that our God is not far away in some far-off land, in, in heaven somewhere, removed from our pain and suffering, but that in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, He entered into our world, He entered into our pain and our suffering, and He joined us in our suffering by His own suffering, and He's with us, and in a sense, suffering with us today if we're His children. So let's look at this in, in, in Scripture, and we're going to start, we're going to read Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. We'll look at a little, at a little bit uh, of, of chapter 5 later in the message. But uh, the writer of Hebrews says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore, an invitation, come boldly. And the word boldly means with freedom of speech. It means that we can share our heart freely with our Father. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And so we're going to get to the invitations that he gives here. But to understand this, we need to lay just a little bit of a foundation. And then we're going to get real, real practical. So the, the first truth that I want you to see in these verses that's foundational to understanding uh, what he invites us to do here is we need to see that Jesus is God who also became a man. This text calls Jesus the Son of God. 
and it alludes to him leaving heaven to come to earth. And then it's very explicit about him uh, leaving the earth and ascending back into heaven. Christian theology teaches that Jesus is fully God and fully man. He's the eternal God. He's the Word, John 1 calls him. But it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Colossians 2.9 says in a literal translation, everything that is God is permanently housed in Jesus Christ in bodily form. So Jesus is the God-man. He's God with us, Emmanuel, God who came from heaven to earth as as a man and lived as a genuine human being. And, and so Jesus, the God-man, let, let me just kind of give you some idea of what this uh, dual uh, truth uh, looks like. Jesus has two natures in one person. As a man, he was part of creation, but because he was God, he was actually the creator. Uh, as a man, he was born of a woman like any other baby, but because he was God, he was conceived of a virgin. As a man, he was born in a manger, but as God, someday he's going to come back again to rule and to reign. As a man, he was baptized by John the Baptist, but because he's God, he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. As a man, he lived under the law, but yet he was actually the lawgiver as God. Because he's God, the Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but yet as a man at times, he had nowhere to lay his head. As a man, he got tired, but as God, he's the one who gives rest to our souls. As a man, he went fell asleep in a boat during a storm, but as God, he's the one who calmed the storm. As God, he's the one who will wipe away all of our tears, but as a man, he wept himself. As a man, he got thirsty, but yet as God, he is the living water. As a man, he got hungry, but because he's God, he is the bread of life. As a man, he was the Lamb of God, a sheep before uh, his slaughterers. But as God, he is the good shepherd. As a man, he's a man of sorrow and grief, but yet he is the God of all comfort. As a man, he was poor and outcast, but he's, as God, he is the one who supplies all of our needs. As a man, he was falsely accused and betrayed, but because he's God, he's always faithful and true. As a man, his family thought he was crazy at times, but yet as God... God, he is all-knowing and has all wisdom. As a man, he limited himself, allowed himself to be limited by time and space. But as God, now he is all-present. As a man, he was probably a carpenter because we know that's what his father did. But as God, he is the door of salvation. As a man, he was forsaken by his own. But as God, he is our faithful advocate, intercessor, and mediator. The Bible says that as a man, he came to his own and his own received him not. But yet he is the one who's the creator, sustainer, and owner of all things. As God, as God, he's the Lord of lords and king of kings. But as a man, he lived meekly, humbly, as a servant. As a man, he prayed. But as God, he is our great high priest. As a man, he went to the temple. But as God, he's the one we worship. When he was a boy, the Bible says he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. But yet as God, in his essential nature, he is unchanging. As a man, he lived for 33 years. But 
God, as God, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. As God, he cursed our sin. But you know how he did that? He did that as a man by becoming, by becoming a curse for sin. As a man, he died a criminal's death. But because he's God and because he's perfect, it was an atoning death. As God, he has all power. But as a man, he was too weak to carry his cross. And when he died the first time, they put a crown of thorns on his head. But when he comes again, the Bible says, because he's God, he's going to be wearing many uh, crowns. As a man, he died, but because he's God, he rose from the dead. As God, he is holy, holy, holy. But yet as a man, he who knew no sin became sin for us. As a man, he died in utter darkness, but as God, he is the light of the world. As a man, he knew loneliness, felt forsaken by his father, but he's promised to never leave us or forsake us. He knew no sin because he's God, but as a man, he became sin for us. As a, as a baby, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. As a man, he wore common man's clothes. He was crucified without clothes, but yet someday, as God, he is coming again, and he is going to be clothed in in glory. Jesus is the God-man. And I want you to see as we go through this tonight, because he's a man, he understands, he empathizes, but as God, he has the power to do something about the needs and the suffering in our lives. So, like I said, that's foundation. Second, I want you to see just real practically, as a man, Jesus suffered and was tempted. As a man, he, he suffered and was tempted. And I, I want us to think about what this means for us. And I, I want to point out three things to you about this. First, he overcame all temptation. Now, and you say, well, I can't relate to that because I sin all the time. How can that help me? He doesn't understand my temptations. Uh, you know, goody-goody people who, who never sin, who never get into, give in to temptation, uh, they don't understand temptation. Uh, can I tell you that I believe the exact opposite of that is true? C.S. Lewis made the argument, and I think he's exactly right, that actually the only person who actually understands temptation is the one who doesn't give in to it because only that person knows the full weight of temptation. That means Jesus, in overcoming all temptation, actually fully understands every temptation that you're going through. Think about it. If we said we're going to run a marathon and I bow out after three miles, which is certainly uh, what would happen, you're the one who knows the full weight of what it means to run a marathon, not me. If, if the church was being persecuted, if we live somewhere where that's going on and we were being tortured and you never deny Jesus and I do, you're the one who feels the full power of that torture, that pain, that agony because you experienced it all. I only got part of it, Jesus, because he fully experienced temptation because he never gave into it, understands the temptation that you're going through. But even beyond that, and this is just amazing, this text tells us that he sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. That's what verse 15 says to us. John MacArthur says of the word weakness, weaknesses does not refer directly to sin, but to feebleness or infirmity. It refers to all the natural limitations of humanity, which however include liability to sin. So think about it. We have... You know, spiritual weakness, we sin, we have other kinds of weakness, we have physical weakness, we just have shortcomings in our lives, there's things we struggle with, there's things we're not good at. All those weaknesses, it says Jesus sympathizes with us because he was a genuine human being 
like us. Now, the, the word uh, sympathize here, is, it's an amazing word. It's translated from the Greek word sympathio. And Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest explains it by writing this. Listen to this. This will encourage you if you get this. This compound word means to suffer with. It says Jesus sympathizes with us. Jesus suffers with us. It means to suffer with another person. Thus to sympathize with him to the extent of entering into his experience and feeling his heartache yourself. The use of the word here means more than a knowledge of human infirmity. It points to a knowledge that has in it a feeling for the other person by reason of a common experience with that person. Our Lord's appreciation of our infirmities is an experiential one based upon the fact that he was tempted like we are. I want you to think about that and just let that settle in your soul for a minute. Listen, I'm not saying this makes you feel awesome. I'm not saying it fixes all of your problems. I'm not saying it makes you want to go out and suffer. But does it not make you trust and love a God that would come and suffer with us, that would leave the splendor and the perfection and the glory of heaven to become one of us? And, And he feels our infirmity because he's been there. He shares a common experience with us. Jesus is our God, and that is who our God is. He sympathizes with you and with me in our weaknesses. But beyond that, he's also the model for us in dealing with our suffering. Now, I want us to to read ahead in the first few verses of chapter 5. And you know, we saw in verse 14 that he's our great high priest. This amplifies the first few verses on what that means, and we'll come back to that later. But there's some things I want you to see in verses 7 and 8, and this has ministered to me so much over the last few weeks. So uh, the text says here, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required, as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So what's happening here, and this is consistently happening through the book of Hebrews, is it's going back to the Old Testament, you know, the Jewish scriptures, the old covenant, and what was there is a type in a picture of Jesus, and he's getting ready to show how Jesus fulfills this, how Jesus is the true high priest, the eternal high priest, the greater high priest. So he says, so also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now notice verses 7 and 8. It says, who in the days of his flesh, when he was here on the earth uh, as a man, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, notice this phrase, with vehement cries and tears, I think this is referring to his experience in the Garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. Uh, To him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, 
And the next time you're suffering, I hope you'll think about that verse and think that if Jesus wasn't too good to suffer, how could I be too good to suffer? But he's, he's our model in our suffering. And th- there's just some practical things that I want to point out to you about this that has helped me as we've gone through a trial over the last several weeks. And I hope will help you as you're in trials now or in the future. First of all, th- this shows us here that God delivered Jesus through raising him from the dead instead of actually delivering him from death. It says his prayer was heard, but he still died, but he rose from the dead. So God delivered Jesus through raising him from the dead instead of keeping him from dying. And so I think how this applies to us is that sometimes he delivers us from things, and sometimes he delivers us through things. Even in the situation with Robin, I mean, there was a time uh, earlier in our lives when, when I was in seminary where she was diagnosed with macular degener- de- degeneration in her eyes, and uh, the doctor said it was irreversible. Then we went back, and God had healed her. It was gone. Our church had a prayer meeting, uh, laid hands on her, prayed over her, anointed her with oil, and, and it was gone. In that same prayer meeting, there was a man who was about to have surgery on his Achilles tendon, which is a terrible recovery, who was literally out playing tennis the next day. Sometimes God heals people. Sometimes he does supernatural miracles. Sometimes he delivers us from things. But sometimes he has a purpose and a reason that we don't know, that maybe we don't understand, where he delivers us through things. You know, we pray for God just to supernaturally uh, remove Robin's cancer. And for whatever reason, it took two surgeries for that to happen. And we just believe he has a plan and a purpose that he's working in this for our good and for his glory. And he's going to use it. And even part of the reason why I'm talking about it is because she and I have determined together that we want this to be redeemed uh, for, for the good of people and for the glory of God. Sometimes he delivers us from things. Sometimes he delivers us through things. I want you to see something else because sometimes when we're going through a hard time and, and, and we pray and maybe our prayers don't get answered in the way that we want them to or when we want them to, we start questioning, is God listening? Does God care? Does God have the power to answer my prayers? I want you to see that it, it says here that Jesus was heard because of his godly fear. He was heard, but he still died. The answer was in the resurrection instead of being spared from death. And I just want to remind you that even when it doesn't feel like it sometimes, if you're a child of God, God is hearing you when you pray. Because remember, our prayer life is not based on our performance, our goodness. It's not based on our works. It's based on the grace of God and the fact that we have a great high priest who came from heaven to earth, Jesus, the Son of God, who died for our sins and is now ascended back into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. And our Our prayers and our prayers being answered are based on the intercession of Jesus and the will of God, not how good we are or how spiritual we are or things like that. Our prayer life is based on the fact that Jesus is our great high priest who is taking those petitions to the throne of God. Third practical thing that I want you to notice here that I think can help when we're in suffering is that even Jesus learned obedience through his sufferings. So how could we expect to learn obedience any other way? I mean, think about it. If Jesus learned obedience, if he was perfected in a sense, I mean, he was already perfect, but that was demonstrated, proven, uh, completed in him going through suffering and obeying God. How are we going to learn obedience any other way? How's our faith going to grow? How are we going to be built up? How are we going to learn endurance if we're not enduring some things? 
Fourth, through suffering, God did something both in and through Jesus, and it works the same way for us. In our suffering and our trials, God is working in us to sanctify us, to grow us, to build our faith, to change our hearts, to change our minds, to cause us to rely on him more. But then as we allow him to work in us, he's going to work through us. In fact, the Bible tells us that we're to comfort others with the comfort that we receive from God. God never wastes a trial. In every trial... As much as we allow him, he'll use it for our growth. He'll use it for his glory. He'll use it for the good of others. He's doing something in and through us. That's what happened with Jesus. Something else I want you to think about is that our emotions, or even when we're wrestling with God, that doesn't indicate a lack of faith. In the Garden of Eden, or in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed three times and asked if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He didn't want to be separated from his Father. He didn't want to become sin for us. Just naturally, he did it out of love, but he wrestled with God. Is there any way possible? But then he came back to, not my will, but your will be done. It, it, it uses the phrase here, uh, it, vehement uh, cries. In the Gospel of Luke, it says that he being in agony talks about him sweating like drops of blood. Listen, wrestling with God over something is not a lack of faith. That is faith. If we're taking our trials and our circumstances and our difficulties and our questions and our doubts and our fears to God and getting in his presence and opening his word, that is faith because we're going to him. Listen, emotions. Uh, I'm not generally uh, real emotional. Uh, but you know, when we first got this news about uh, Robin, um, I cried like Rusty Arwood watching a Hallmark movie for about three days. Um, you know, this, this week when we got this good news, uh, I think I happy cried for the first time in my life. I've never understood that before, but you know, those emotions, I mean, that's just like symptoms of our soul. Jesus was emotional. We can have emotions. That doesn't mean we're not trusting God, but then ultimately, and this is, I think what this is all about is that Jesus surrendered to the will of God, to the will of the Father by faith. And that is ultimately what we're called to do as well in life, in trials, in, in, in suffering, in, in everything. And listen, that's the hardest thing in the world to do sometimes. You know, when we first heard this about Robin, and, you know, I, I kind of, as much as I could for a couple of days, had to get to myself, and I was really wrestling with God. But, you know, when I, when he gave me peace, when I received peace, that's not to say that that's what I've felt and experienced 100% of the time since then. There have been some random times. I've just been walking around mumbling to myself, I hate this. But since a couple of days after that, uh, I had generally had peace about this, but it happened when I came to the place of saying, your will be done. That if, if, this, if you have chosen to allow this, if you have sent this to us for this season, for whatever reason, I accept that, that I wouldn't go back and change it if I could, if this is really from you and we're going to trust you with it. And it's in that surrender that peace comes. But what's so hard for us is, me anyway, and I think I'm not the only one, 
is a lot of times I want to use God to get what I want instead of truly surrendering and saying, not my will, but your will be done. And the only way to have peace is to come to that place of saying, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus modeled that for us. Surrender is what brings victory. So he overcame temptation. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. And he gives us the model, the example for how to deal with suffering. But I want us to also see, number three, that Jesus, the God-man, who, over, who experienced suffering and temptation, became our great high priest. Now, in the Old Testament, the high priest had two basic functions. He, he went to God on behalf of the people, and then he went to the people on behalf of God. He went to the people on behalf of God, uh, showing them the will of God, ministering the word of God to them. He, he went to God, on behalf of the people, though, bringing an offering for their sins. And, of course, he had to be cleansed first. This was temporary. It's a picture. It's a shadow. It's, it's, it's a type. It was preparatory for the coming of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus does both of those things as well. He ministers to us, speaks to us, guides us, helps us, strengthens us, encourages us on behalf of the Father. But also, he is uh, going to the Father on our behalf, interceding for us, being our mediator, our advocate, and and pleading his blood over our sins so we can actually be forgiven, have a relationship with God, and come into the presence of God. He is our mediator. He's the go-between. He's the one who can, in a sense, and I'm just speaking symbolically, place one hand in the hand of God and one hand in our hand and connect the two together and bring us into a relationship and fellowship with God where you can know God and worship God and talk to God. Jesus is that connection point. You see, the thing that's so amazing about Jesus and and part of what the book of Hebrews is teaching us, he is not only our great high priest offering the sacrifice on our behalf, he is the sacrifice. He made the sacrifice on the cross, so he's both. That means that he and he alone is our access to the Father. Practically, this means two things for us then. Number one, he is able to save us. Hebrews 7, starting verse 25 says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost, completely, fully, permanently, those who come to God through him. That's the only way to come to God, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled. He resisted temptation, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. That's the good news of the gospel once for all. We don't need to offer sacrifices today. Why? Because Jesus was the once for all sufficient permanent sacrifice for sin. We don't need a priest to get to God today. Why? Because Jesus is our high priest who's bringing that sacrifice in a sense to the Father and he's pleading on our behalf and his blood is sufficient to cleanse us from all our sins. 
Whatever religion you're in, you don't need a priest to help you get to God. You need Jesus. It's kind of like this. I read a, a story that a pastor told one time of, he was, uh, I guess, you know, part of the time he kind of volunteers as a chaplain in a hospital. He's making rounds. And um, he encountered a Catholic lady uh, who was dying. And, and he said to her, well, let me get the priest uh, for you. He can minister to you better than I can. And, and she reached under her hospital gown and put, pulled out a crucifix and showed him Jesus and said, I don't need a priest. This is my priest. And that's the point of what he's saying here. We don't need a human priest. We don't need a human intermediary, a human go-between. Jesus is the one who brings us to the Father. He made a once-for-all sacrifice for sins. He's able to save us. And, and so today, if you know that you're a sinner, if you know that you're separated from God, you don't need a priest, you don't need a religion, you don't need a sacrifice, you don't need a ritual, you need Jesus. You don't need to try to work your way to God. You don't need to try to reform yourself or improve yourself. You just need to come to Jesus, confessing your sin, humbling yourself, admitting you, there's nothing you can do to save yourself, and then putting your full spiritual weight on him and on his sacrifice on the cross, believing he's God's son, believing he died for you, believing he rose from the dead, and by faith, receiving him into your life. And then at that point, you're forgiven of sin, you're connected to God, and you can come to God in fellowship, in worship, in prayer. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Jesus will be with you, sympathizing with you, helping you in the trials that you go through. And that brings me to the second practical application of this, and that is that he is available to help us in our suffering. That's, that's what he promises in these verses. That's what he's talking about when he talks about coming to God's throne of grace to find grace and mercy to help in the time of need. In his book, The Case for Faith, one of the people that Lee Strobel interviewed is a man by the name of Peter Kreeft, who's a, a well-known philosopher and also a believer. And there, uh, Strobel writes this. He says, we were clearly moving toward the climax of our discussion. The clues Kreeft had mentioned at the outset of our interview were converging, and I could sense an increasing passion and conviction in his voice. I wanted to see more of his heart, and I wouldn't be disappointed. So Strobel says, the answer then to suffering, I said in trying to sum up where we've come, is not an answer at all. And Kreef said this, correct, it's the answerer. It's Jesus himself. It's not a bunch of words. It's the word. It's not a tightly woven philosophical argument. It's a person, the person. The answer to suffering cannot just be an abstract issue. It's a personal issue. It requires a personal response. The answer must be someone, not just something, because the issue involves someone. God, where are you? He goes on and says, Jesus is there sitting beside us in the lowest places of our lives. Are we broken? He was broken like bread for us. Are we despised? He was despised and rejected of men. Do we cry out that we can't take anymore? He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Do people betray us? He was sold out himself. Are our tenderest relationships broken? He too loved and was rejected. Do people turn from us? They hid their faces from him as from a leper. Does he descend into all of our hells? Yes, he does. From the depths of a Nazi death camp, 
Corey Tim Boom wrote, No matter how deep our darkness, he is deeper still. He not only rose from the dead, he changed the meaning of death, and therefore of all the little deaths, the sufferings that anticipate death and make up parts of it. But he knew Jesus was more than an explanation. He's what we really need. If your friend is sick and dying, the most important thing he wants is not an explanation. He wants you to sit with him. He's terrified of being alone more than anything else. So God has not left us alone. Jesus is God who became a man. He was tempted. He suffered. He became our great high priest. Therefore, because of all of this, because he, of what he has done for us, this text gives us three things that we can now do that if you will do this, no matter what's going on in your life, it will change your life. First of all, we can come to him and receive eternal salvation. I've shared the gospel with you through this message that it's not in a man, it's not in a religion, it's not in yourself, it's not in a combination of those things. It's in Jesus and Jesus alone. Tonight, or in the morning, or whenever you're watching this, will you come to him by faith? Will you surrender to him, trust him, relying on his full payment for your sins, him absorbing the wrath of God on the cross? Will you trust that and stop trusting your own effort and works and goodness and, and, and righteousness? But will you admit you have nothing to offer and come to God's throne of grace, asking for grace and mercy to forgive you of your sins and change your life? If God's drawing you to him right now, speaking that in your heart, I invite you to call on the name of Jesus and receive the gift of salvation. If you're a Christian, though, in, in these verses, in, in verses 14 through 16 of chapter 4, there's, there's two times he starts a phrase with the words, let us. And they're an invitation. The first one is, let us hold fast our confession. And Hebrews is, was actually written to uh, suffering, persecuted, dispersed Christians. So he's saying to them, in, in the midst of all that, and he's saying to us, in the midst of whatever we're going through, hold fast our confession of faith in Jesus Christ. You ever felt like walking away? I have. I've thought about it. I thought, is this real? Do I really believe this? Does this work? Is this true? Can I really count on Jesus? Why are things so tough? Well, there's a scripture that I think amplifies this that I've come back to time and time again. It's in John chapter 6. Starting in verse 66, it says, From that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's saying, where, where else are we going to go? You're Christ, you're Messiah, you're God. You have the truth. And that's what I have always come back to when I've thought about walking away, when it just seems like too much. Is where else am I actually going to go? You see, I can't give you any magical words or formula to fix all... Uh, 
of your suffering. I can't guarantee you that your life is going to get better. But what I'm saying is in Christ, we can drive some stakes in the ground that we can hold on to even when all the storms of life, that life is like a hurricane blowing around us. It's not even what we believe. He says, Paul said, I know whom I have believed and persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. Jesus is God who came and joined us in our suffering. He's God who loved us so much that he suffered for us on the cross. And he's the God who triumphed over death and his glorious resurrection. Because of that, we can hang on. We can hold fast our confession. We can have hope no matter what's going on, not based on circumstances, but based on who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And when everything is falling apart around us, that's what will stand. Hold fast our confession. And then in verse 16, he gives another invitation, and we'll close with this. He says, Let us therefore come boldly to God's throne of grace and receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. He says, Through me, you can come to the throne of the living God of the universe. And in your time of need, God will help you by his grace and by his mercy. In my life, time and time again, I found that to be true. And you know really what's so good about this? Is it's not based on my performance. How religious, how spiritual, how godly I am. It's based on Jesus' performance. You know, as we've walked through this trial, we've tried to honor God with it. But I've failed at, at that and many times in, in, in different ways. But you know what? When I was on the spiritual mountaintop trusting God, praising God, or when I was in crazy town thinking ridiculous, worst-case scenario kind of thoughts, questioning God, whatever else you want to say, God didn't love me any differently. He was as available to me in either scenario as he was the other. You see, because it's not based on how good or godly or spiritual I am, because I have no hope that if that's the case, it's based on the fact that Jesus is the Son of God who left heaven, came to earth, resisted every temptation, and then died for my sins and rose from the dead, ascended back to heaven, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is my high priest, and he's interceding for me, and he's helping me, and he's sustaining me, and he understands. And because he was a man, he knows what I'm going through, and because he's God, God, he has the power to do something about it. Only the gospel can do that in us and for us and through us. Only the gospel can help us and sustain us when life is falling apart because only the gospel is based fully on Jesus and his finished work instead of me because I'm always going to mess it up. I'm going to blow it. I can't handle it. I'm not strong enough, but Jesus is. So if you're a Christian what I would say to you is look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on him and hold fast your confession. Hang on to him. Trust in, rely on who he is and what he has done for you. If you're a Christian, you're a child of God. Your father loves you. And you've got an open invitation to come into his presence through Jesus Christ to bring your needs, your hurts, your struggles, your fears, your doubts, your failures. And he's waiting on you to give you grace and mercy. Just bring it to him right now.
And if you're not a Christian, this is the best news in the world. That it doesn't depend on you. That it's already been done. That it's accomplished. The price has been paid. Jesus died for all of your sins. Now you just have to humble yourself and admit that you're a sinner. And admit that you have a need. And admit that you can't do it. And come to him and receive that forgiveness. Receive that grace and that mercy. I want to invite you to do that right now. Wherever you're watching, you just bow your heads and close your eyes with me for a moment. And if God right now is convicting you of your sin and your need for a Savior, and you know that Savior is Jesus, will you place your trust, your confidence, your hope in Him? Ask Him to forgive you of your sins. Ask Him to come into your life. You need some help in how to articulate that. If this is what's in your heart, you can pray something like this. Dear Jesus, I've sinned against God. I'm guilty. There's nothing I can do to make myself right with God. But I believe you have done everything that's necessary. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. And in this moment, I place my life in your hands. I ask you to forgive me and cleanse me. I ask for grace and mercy. Jesus, take control of my life. I confess you as my Lord and my Savior. If you just placed your trust in Christ, if you're on the online church platform, there's a button you can click on that, and that, to indicate that. It'll take you to the prayer button. When you click on that and let one of our people minister to you, help you to understand and take your next steps for making that decision. If you need to talk to somebody about that, if you've got questions, you need some further explanation, Click on that button, or if you're on the other platforms, let us know that you have questions or that you've prayed to receive Christ by going to the comments feed. Or if you feel more comfortable, you can email us at info at the truelifechurch.com. Or you can message me at Facebook Messenger, Jimmy Inman. For those of you who are Christians, you're hurting, you're struggling right now. In this moment, in this time, as they sing, would you just take your needs to God's throne of grace and ask him for grace and mercy to help in your time of need. If you need somebody to pray with you, talk with you, click that prayer button, indicate it in the chat room, indicate it in the comments. I'd encourage you to listen to this song. It's one of the most powerful songs I've ever heard. Let this message minister to you. And as they sing, encourage you to respond to the Lord, encourage you to reach out to us if there's some way that we can minister to you.